Hello and welcome to the Eclectic Folk Podcast, where we interview interesting people who might not otherwise be interviewed. I'm your host, Mr. Cat. Not my real name, but myself and my guests all have the option to use a pseudonym if we so desire, as oftentimes people will speak more freely if they feel their anonymity is guaranteed. My guest today is going by the name Mr. Pink. He told me beforehand that it's a reference from the movie Reservoir Dogs. I usually like to structure my episodes so we go over the guest's life before coming to the present and having them go over what they're currently involved in. This time, Mr. Pink launched right into his current discipline, and I didn't have the heart to interrupt him. In the second half of the episode, we did finally get around to talking about his early life. Mr. Pink is a PhD candidate in cognitive psychology with a focus on artificial intelligence. He is, however, planning on leaving academia behind, and he will explain why in the episode. I hope you will enjoy episode four of the Eclectic Folk Podcast. Okay, we're live. <laughs> um, I'm joined here. Right, to- great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. I'm joined here today with Mr. Pink. Uh, he's going by the pseudonym Mr. Pink, and uh, he's an academic who's uh, done research at a couple universities around the world. Actually, do you want to just kind of give a brief overview and synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'd say I, I'm more of an ex-academic. I've been interested in, uh, in, in the, generally in cognitive sciences. I've been studying memory. For some time, I, I wouldn't say I'm a full-fledged academic because I've kind of, you know, I'm I'm I, I'm just wrapping up my doctorate now. Uh, but I have decided that academia might not be the best fit for my interests and my uh, goals in life. So I'm kind of making an exit now from academia to just uh, general industry work now. Hmm. Um, just to give you an idea of the broad interest, I've studied human memory for a long time, and our work is inter, uh, intersected with uh, with general AI, general work in AI. So, uh, whereas most uh, a lot of AI researchers are simply interested in uh, building AI systems that work really well, so they're great engineering feats. Uh, what we've done has been to uh, compare AI models or different approaches within the AI world with human information processing uh, or trying to match it with how people carry on different tasks. So uh, we're, we're more, more specifically uh, within the general area of cognitive science or cognitive psychology. Okay. It's, new, it's sort of news to me that cognitive science or cognitive psychology is also um, a profession that utilizes AI that much. So how how does how does like artificial intelligence tell us anything about human psychology? 
Right. So, so that's a great question, and uh, it's one not a lot of people are aware of. Uh, if you if you look at the history of AI, actually, um, specifically when it comes to neural networks, which have been making great uh, splashes these days, uh, neural networks are essentially based in uh, research within the cognitive psychology, cognitive science uh, specifically, um, because. Ultimately, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of waves in AI. We started off uh, early on around, say, the, the 50s uh, with what, what, what people refer to as good old-fashioned AI. Uh, these were symbolic approaches where, uh, you know, the programming language, if, if you're familiar with Lisp, uh, was heavily influential. It's, you essentially have uh, tree structures. You... you, you uh, characterize different problems, different uh, cognitive-like problems, say, for example, answering a question uh, or uh, searching through memory in a sort of conceptual, conceptually meaningful manner. Uh, in terms of searches within uh, these tree-like structures, and these were, uh, in this case, different uh, different concepts would be simply characterized by different symbols. So you could have a symbol for cat, a symbol for dog, a symbol for, you know, can run uh, and what and so forth. And you could characterize different uh, intelligent types of behavior in terms of uh, searches down uh, tree-like structures. Uh, for example, uh, you, you might have a question like, can a tree, uh, can a uh, cat, fly. Uh, so you could characterize this in terms of a search down a tree-like structure where you start with a, uh, with a node, say cat, and that node is connected with another node, uh, uh, runs, uh, for example, can run, uh, mm -hmm. could be one path down a tree-like structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and you would essentially, to, to answer the question, can cats fly you would you would go down uh, each of those pathways down a tree-like structure until you exhaust every possibility and uh, before you answer no they can't fly because there's no connection between flies and cat uh, and cats uh, down this tree-like structure so, so these were early approaches uh, often called good old-fashioned AI or gofi hmm. so this was in the 50s and this was heavily uh, again uh, heavily influenced by work in cognitive psychology, cognitive science, where uh, researchers wanted to come up with a mechanistic explanation for how it is that people process information. Mm. Uh, shortly after is that, the, is that, that was... Sorry, yep. it, but is that similar to the way the human brain, the human brain would process that information? So I think there still probably exists some people who would say if you take a broad enough perspective, if you look at a general enough, uh, if you take a general enough uh, level of analysis, some of these ideas still hold mm. uh, of people. But in general, what people found was that these uh, these symbolic, uh, you know, expert system approaches to AI 
simply don't generalize. They don't scale up to the kinds of tasks people can do. So, so ultimately, we we decided that the, these were too handcrafted. There was too much done on the part of the modeler in this case. So you had to, you know, d- uh, devise these specific rules, uh, which which made it difficult to 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 answer the question as to how it is that we can learn humans can learn to carry on such various tasks throughout our lives uh, as if you try to build in all these rules so these were rule-based approaches if you try to build in all these rules into the system before long uh, before before you get too far you realize that you need a lot of rules first of all and the more rules you add the less flexible the system becomes and so Shortly after, people people abandoned this approach for uh, for what are called connectionist or parallel distributed uh, processing approaches, and this was the second wave in AI. Uh, in this case, uh, so this this is more uh, similar to uh, what's what's happening today, uh, where you see neural net what are called neural networks, uh, mm-hmm. which are essentially models that are loosely based on how the brain uh, is, is thought to function. You have a set of nodes, a set of uh, individual units that are connected to one another with a set of weights. And you can uh, characterize uh, intelligent behavior within these systems in terms of uh, activation getting passed from one layer of units to another layer. Uh, and, and instead of, in this case, instead of representing concepts as individual nodes, you represent concepts as distributed representations across a set of units, uh, which which gives you a lot more flexibility uh, compared to the good old fashioned approach where you have different discrete symbols standing for uh, for different say concepts. Um, and, and when it comes to AI, concepts ult- uh, ultimately have the representation of concepts is one of the key key problems in AI. Uh, the, the, I mean, ultimately, you can you can break down any kind of task, any type type of intelligent task in terms of a a representation and b a, a set of uh, operations that are carried out on these representations. And so initially we had these symbols, this, these discrete symbols uh, with, with uh, direct rules that would di- dictate how you would, uh, you know, search, say, through a certain knowledge base, a certain memory system. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we found out that this was far, far too inflexible to, uh, to capture some of the tasks that people can do. And so... Uh, then at some point, people started exploring these neural network approaches, which again have been based on uh, based on psychology. And I mean, uh, if you look at the the researchers involved, they are, uh, for example, uh, uh, McClelland. He was a cognitive psychologist. He's one of the main names associated with these neural network approaches. Uh, when were these amazing. neural networks uh, invented? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, and uh, if, if if I'm, I think the initial there's a person called Rosenblatt, uh, 
uh, in the 40s, who initially started playing around with these models. Uh, he came up with, uh, I might be getting the, the dates wrong here, sort of, but uh, he started working with what are called perceptrons early on. These were essentially uh, two-layer networks where you have a layer of input nodes, a layer of input units connected to a layer of output units. Uh, and there he was... Uh, he would feed the input, uh, say a specific character, for example, uh, the uh, the image of a specific character, say the letter A, and at the output layer, he would have a specific, a single node become activated uh, for the letter A, mm. and he came up with what's called the, the perceptron learning rule. Perceptron? Uh, why? Why is it called? It sounds like a Jetson's machine. Why is it called the perceptron? That, that's right, actually, and 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 that's a great, uh, that's a good observation. They they came up with all kinds of uh, very cool sounding names that made you think, you know, um, there this is some cutting edge sci fi stuff. Hmm. Uh, well, the reason it was called a perceptron, first of all, it was uh, it was a a play on the on on words uh, with the term perception, hmm. because uh, basically the the idea is that what what is perception. Right. Perception is to perceive something. Right. Mm. And so uh, that this perceptron was able to see a set of patterns, a distributed set of patterns, for example, these would be different features corresponding to uh, an image of a letter. Mm. And then it would it would be it was able to map these let these this, these individual features to a single entity, for example, the letter A, mm. a single category. So it, it's it's. Uh, in gen uh, generally a kind of classification problem where you have a set of input features and you want to uh, map it to a certain class or a certain categorical label, mm. for example, the letter A. Mm. And you, you want the system to be able to, uh, to be relatively robust to the variations in the different ways you can have the letter A written down. You could have, a you know, sometimes you might, uh, if you write down the letter A, you might have uh, you know, some of sometimes the the lines might not be very uh, very straight. Sometimes there might be uh, some kind of uh, certain squiggles around. You want the system to be generally robust to this kind of noise and, and be able to map all these different variations of the letters to their corresponding classes. And, and and some would argue, some argue that perception is essentially this act of taking a set of features, these a set of you know a categorical uh, classless features and mapping them to a specific label. And, that, and that's why uh, that's a, that, you know, I might, I might be, uh, I might not be hundred percent correct here, but that, that is my, my guess as to why they were called perceptrons. Okay. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's, it's carrying out perception essentially. There were, there were other funny names like this. For example, there was a neocognitron, wow. uh, uh, other similar names, uh, that that's, I guess though that's another one that that comes to mind, but but yeah, the, and you can kind of see in these names they kind of had this grand vision of the future, hmm. uh, perhaps sort of even influenced by sci-fi at uh, during those times, Isaac which kind Asimov of overhyped. That that that's right, that's right. Hmm. So it, it sort of overhyped everything, hmm. and, and shortly uh, shortly after the, these original. Uh, 
the, this original uh, progress in the field, uh, there was a there was a famous paper. Uh, there was a fa famous book by a guy by the name of uh, who's who's actually somewhat well known, uh, who who criticized. Uh, I'm trying to trying to remember his name right now. It'll come to me. Mm. Um, uh, but basically, he criticized these perceptrons because he showed that there are cer certain class of problems that perceptrons just can't learn. Mm. Uh, and to be specific, these are X or type problems or exclusive or type problems. So these are types of problems where you, you might have, say, uh, two input nodes. You might have A and B. Mm. And you want the system to... Uh, and you have a, a single output node, uh, C, for example, mm. uh, and you want the system to, uh, to uh, activate C when either A or B is active, but not when both are active. Mm. So this is the exclusive or problem. So mm. A or B, but not A and B, mm -hmm. both together. You want it mm. to be, uh, you want C not to be activated if A and a and B are both active or right. if, uh, neither are active, but okay. if either of them are active, yeah, yeah. you want the output to be active. Uh, so, so, uh, he showed that, uh, basically there's a crit uh, critique of perceptrons, uh, but I can, I can quickly look up his name. Uh, Minsky. Of course, okay. Minsky and Papert. Uh, you've probably heard of Minsky. I mean, you might have heard of Minsky. He's I don't know if I have. Man. Famous figure. He uh. became actually sort of even a little more famous because of his uh, affiliations with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Actually, no uh, they, they happen to be friends. Yeah. What? Um, but wasn't he doing uh, I mean, AI I, research as you said back in the fifties? So is he, he must have been very he, old. He was when... doing. He he passed away. Uh, I think about. With in the past couple of years, he passed away actually. Okay. Uh, so he he's one of the pioneers. He's one of the early guys. Uh, but he wrote this per critique of perce uh, perceptrons, which was earlier work by Rosenblatt. Um, it was a, a a book called uh, a critique of perceptrons. I by did hear Minsky and Papert. I did hear something yeah. like Epstein was. Um, befriending a lot of like high-ranking sort of academic type people is that's you, right is so, that something you've heard that, too? that's correct he, he he happened to have an interest it, it seemed uh with uh uh he had an interest in physicists and also uh, cognitive scientists as wow. well uh, ai researchers so uh there's a there's there's a famous picture of him with uh steven pinker for example who's a famous cognitive scientist uh, also with uh, Minsky, uh, can't remember his first name, uh, with Minsky and uh, I think a few other ones as well, a few other uh, big names in the field, uh, which which kind of gives you a bit of an idea of, you know, the maybe the interconnection between the world, this world of uh, academia, specifically with these certain fields and, uh, you know, these very powerful people who, hmm. who tend to attract each other. Uh, I mean, I feel like some of these people are just uh, become a little too attracted to power and uh, hmm. to status. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of the factors that made me want to uh, uh, feel like uh, this might not be the best place for me. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll, I want to. I do want to explore that idea. That. Yeah. About why you chose to leave academia. I I, I will come back to that. Yeah. But I want to. 
but so yes ask a few follow-up questions about uh the discipline so how does cognitive like what is cognitive psychology vis-a-vis regular psychology yeah great yeah so uh so psychology is really a bit, uh, an umbrella term mm. for a lot of different subfields within psychology. Mm. And, and if you were to ask that question to, uh, you know, to, to typical cognitive psychologists, they would say, uh, well, cognitive psychology is the only psychology that actually tries to be scientific. Mm. That is, that is science, that is adhering to the scientific method as, as best as it can. Mm. Uh, so, so what exactly does that mean? Well, cognitive psychologists are interested in human information processing mm. in general, mm. right? So uh, we want to know exactly how it is that some input for example, you know, this visual image that you get, uh, that's coming into your retina, uh, uh, you know, the odd, odd, uh, the sound vibrations that are hitting your, uh, your auditory receptors. Uh, we want to know how is it that this information gets transformed into uh, another kind of signal that then has more meaning, for example. Uh, what is the, what are the stages of processing? What are the stages of information processing? Mm. Essentially that, that uh, take the initial signals mm. and then uh, transform them into something that's meaningful. And then how do you then take that, that uh, representation that's formed from that incoming signal and use it to uh, to to drive your behavior to act in the world. Uh, so, so, for example, we can contrast this with social psychologists who uh, who tend to uh, simply look at, for example. Uh, what what certain uh, what actions correlate with what behaviors for uh, what uh, you know what attitudes correlate with what behaviors for example uh, the main difference I would say is that they don't have a, a strong theoretical basis to their work in, ter- in, a, in a, that's that's more more akin to what uh, say a physicist would call a theory uh, for a cognitive psychologist to have a theory uh, would mean to have a very specific mechanistic understanding as to how it is that 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 the, the information is transformed at these different stages, you know, initially perception and then higher level cognition, for example, memory, uh, 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 language processing, uh, that, those sorts of uh, levels of understanding ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so cognitive psychologists try to be, uh, try to mimic physicists in the, in the rigor they use when it comes to theory making. And so, and so for example, the, one of the, the main area where mathematics is used often to construct theories is within cognitive psychology, hmm. uh, more generally cognitive science. Um, where where you come up with uh, you you try to come up with mathematical rules that try uh, that dictate how it is that information is transformed at these different stages, and you try to come up with a mathematically um, uh, mathematically grounded way that this information is represented and transformed. Uh, and then you you can test this theory by essentially modeling 
different tasks, for example, uh, for example, different memory tasks, different decision making tasks, and then you can then match human performance to these models, these um, uh, mathematical models, uh, in order to uh, directly test your hypotheses. Uh, the cognitive psychology is one of the few areas in psychology where uh, mathematical modeling is used, although it, it is becoming a bit more popular uh, more broadly. However, it's not uh, at the mechanistic level. It's not at the level of uh, information pro processing in in the uh, in other areas of psychology. So that's that's maybe my my quick answer. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um... What made you like? How did you find yourself getting into this, into this yeah. line of study? Yes, right. So actually, I was initially really interested in philosophy. Mm. Uh, before I I went into undergraduate work, I I became very interested in philosophy. Uh, that was my major. <laughs> right, mm. and that, that's great. That's great, and I mean it's. It's still a field that I find very beautiful and I, I go back to often. I try to, I've always kind of been back and forth uh, trying to go back to the general philosophical ideas and then uh, understanding how more, these, these more specific empirically based kind of uh, uh, studies can, can, be, can, can be embedded within the general philosophical frameworks hmm. uh but but i was a i was a huge fan of the empiricists so uh david hume was uh, was one of my favorite philosophers uh, i was a uh, john locke hmm. uh i was a i was a big fan of bertrand russell hmm. uh his uh you know uh, essentially the the english school i'd say uh had, had a great uh, influence on me yeah uh later on actually after i i did some of the i got into cognitive psychology i've kind of looked back often and uh uh you know a lot of our work is actually uh you can think it would be uh it's like uh, the the end result of what would happen if you were to take uh ludwig wittgenstein's uh, idea that language or meaning of language is essentially use in context. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the 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 kind of theoretical path that I've taken in my mm. work, it has been essentially trying to play out that idea to its limits, essentially. Uh, but the, but yeah. sorry, the, so I was, the the limits yeah. of the idea that language. Sorry, I didn't. That, I'm not sure if that, I understood. That meaning that that yeah. the meaning of uh, essentially he's famous for uh, for for claiming that uh, you know uh, for a long time in philosophy mm. in the philosophy of language uh, people were interested in characterizing meaning. Mm. Uh, what is what? Uh, how do we represent meaning? What is meaning? Mm. And, and Wittgenstein just uh, kind of said, you know, uh, you can contrast this with his. Uh, with Bertrand Russell's logical positivism, mm. uh, where you know uh, meaning was based on kind of propositional analysis of of language, uh, where uh, Wittgenstein essentially just said meaning is just use in context. So the awards meaning is essentially just based on the context in which the word is used. Mm. Uh, there's no need to kind of have this deep. Uh, mm deep representation of meaning hmm. except to just 
keep track of the context, contextual history of different words, for example, to understand their meaning. Hmm. But but just to continue from there, so I was very uh, very interested in philosophy. I, I started off uh, minoring in philosophy. Uh, uh, I was uh, I I, I kind of knew that uh, it, I I was majoring in psychology initially, just more broadly, uh, because I, I knew that I wanted to uh, work in a in a more uh, I, I wanted to take an empirical uh, kind of approach to these problems, mm. uh, and, and it, it didn't take me long to realize that the only kind of the best path for me was to go down the path of cognitive psychology. Mm. Uh, um, namely, uh, in the in the area of mathematical modeling, cognitive modeling. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Maybe and, I yeah. <laughs> maybe I just spaced. I'm sorry. I'm like, I am drinking. Yeah, a, no, I am drink, yeah. I am drinking a beer. Although I barely feel it. But yes, how did how did you go from um, being like from Wittgenstein to deciding to major in psych? Did I did I did you touch on that? Like, okay, what, what was yeah, the spark actually, that, that made that, that was my fault? Yeah, I, I did. I did speed ahead a bit. Mm. So I actually wasn't very well aware of Wittgenstein okay. until later oh, okay, on okay. Okay. when I, when I, when I uh, got into this, yeah. uh, when I did some of the modeling work, but I was very, uh, I was more familiar with Bertrand Russell. Sure. Uh, I was very familiar with uh, David Hume's yeah. associationism, okay. which is uh, which has a, has had a strong influence on the kind of modeling I got into later on uh, during my PhD. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, that was my. But I, how I did you I become? Of, oh, it's fine. But how did you become yes. aware that cognitive psychology would sort of inherit? your interests like how how did you yes become aware of it as a discipline i guess ultimately when i was uh sitting in different philosophy lectures mm. and then sitting in different psychology lectures mm. i felt like there were a few people who were uh interested in both areas mm. there were there were a lot of people who were interested in psychology from a clinical perspective mm. um and a lot of times I would, uh, a lot of the themes that were discussed in my philosophy lectures, they seem to be echoed within the psychology, uh, within my psychology classes, uh, except no one would point this out. Or if, if, if you did point them out, no one would really feel that interested in the relationships. Hmm. Um, but, but to be kind of more specific, the area of philosophy I was most interested in was essentially uh, the philosophy of mind, mm. uh, the philosophy of selfhood. What does it mean to, you know, have a self? What is a self? What are, uh, you know, uh, what's the nature of memories? Mm. Um, these kinds of problems really, really kept me up at night. Why, why, uh, why did the, yeah. yeah, why did you feel drawn to those kinds of problems? Yeah, that's a. Uh, ultimately, I'm not sure if I can answer that question really well. I think it was just a kind of personal affinity, mm. but uh, it was also, I think, it, it could be a, a general tendency I have towards, uh, you know, uh, being a bit introverted and uh, maybe even self-centered, uh, constantly kind of thinking about thinking. Uh, wondering how it is that you know my my thoughts uh, are revoked. I've always been really kind of really fascinated just by the general uh, 
general question as to how it is that uh, we think and what is it, what it means for one thought to kind of, kind of uh, succeed another thought and how, how is it that thoughts are represented? Mm. Uh, so I was really into these uh, interested in these questions. And, and so this, this kind of, this, this uh, motivated my leap from, from the general philosophical inquiries into into something more empirical mm-hmm. and model driven would you think of yourself as a, a a materialist in the sense that you think thoughts are always um arose like they always arise based on physical inputs or or um mm-hmm. like like uh right brain brain activity of- and such Right, right. Yeah, that's or do so, they that's like, really, or do some people think like yeah. some people think thoughts are sort of they live in this abstract space or they're almost independent of or higher than right. the physical physical thing itself. So I think thoughts are essentially states, different states of oh. the neural system. Okay. Um do, can't, does a thought exist independently of a neural system? Mm. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily. I don't see how that can that can happen. Mm. Uh, uh, does the potential for the thought exist independently of the neural system? There, I can see how that that could be argued. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there, many people can have the same thought without discussing that uh, yeah. uh, thought with each other. Uh, I, I guess in, what I'm in, asking in is, sense, um, yeah. like, do you do you think of it as a kind of like a deterministic thing, where in the same, given a certain state, given the same inputs, the resulting thought would always take place, almost like a pure function in in coding or something, right? Like that. There, I no, I I do not think that because okay. uh, if there's if there's one overall theme within the modeling work is that uh, our minds are stochastic. Hmm. There are uh, that's another that's a fancy way of saying that it's probabilistic, right? It's uh, essentially uh, I believe this sort of to to echo uh, to kind of bring up uh, the the famous quote by the uh, you can't step into the same river twice. Hmm. Uh, you, you might remember, uh, was it, um, uh, one of the, it was a Greek, yeah. yeah, Diogenes yeah. or something. I don't remember. Yeah, it wasn't Diogenes, but I, I can't remember the name right now, but it was yeah. one of the pre-Socratics yeah. who said you can't step into the same river twice. And I, I, I firmly believe that when it comes to thoughts as well, I don't think you can ever truly have the exact same thought twice. I think every time you have a thought, it's just a little bit different. And I think every diff, every person who has a thought hmm. uh, has that thought as a function of all their past experience up to that point, in addition to any kind of stimulus, any kind of input that they get into the into their system. Hmm. Uh, plus, plus there's uh, the neural the neural networks, uh, biological neural networks. Our brains are essentially probabilistic. So uh, sometimes a cell might fire, uh, all things equal. Sometimes a cell might fire, sometimes it might not, because there's a little bit of noise in the system. So, so I think there are those three big factors that, that impact the, thought, uh, the exact nature of the thought. So, 
So maybe maybe you could say I'm not 100% deterministic mm. uh, uh, in, in that sense. Mm. Do I believe that there is a sort of metaphysically abstract uh, mm. kind of entity mm. that corresponds to a thought that mm. is independent of any kind of physical process? Mm. Uh, I have not been able to convince myself of this yet. I, mm. I'm not convinced that there is. Uh, I believe that, um, you know, I, I can't I can't rationalize something of that sort to be true. Mm. Although I, I have been, you know, especially uh, after completing getting through my PhD, I have become a bit more open Mm. to the idea that you know maybe the scientific rationalist approach is not completely com completely you know uh all encompassing true. True. It, it, all yeah. encompassing mm. so i i do leave a little bit of room for doubt although mm. i i don't think i've been able to convince myself of that yet mm. fair enough so I, I i would say i i probably you could probably say that i am a materialist yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe a bit closer to uh, if you, if you, you know, David Chalmers. Uh, I essentially think of the uh, no. different thoughts <laughs> Sorry, as different, different inf information processing states. Essentially, okay. different states. Uh, so, if, uh, there, there was a uh, so, so there's a kind of uh, general, like a mathematical uh, theory called uh, communication theory. Hmm. Uh, it's a basically, uh, it's it's a kind of it's it's a theoretical framework underlying a lot of our cell, say cellular types of communication. Uh, you essentially have a communication channel, uh, and then you have uh, information flowing. You know, you might have bits, you might have zeros and ones flowing into the channel and out of the channel. Mm. Uh, are those bits, you know, zeros and ones? Is that information? Uh, is that a thought? Mm. Uh, is that physical or is that, you know, some, something more abstract? Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure because, well, you know, you can, you can store information, um, in various forms. You can store information in a, in, in transistors in a computer, or you can store information in a neural network mm. in a biological neural network, or you can store information in like, uh, just, uh, through the writings onto a stone, for example, it, the Rosetta Stone. In your opinion, uh, if we were to take a, a hypothetical question, I guess, like if we were to take a human brain, uh, like a person's brain, a living person's brain, and just sort of yes. copy it, like deep scan copy right. every yes, like every position of every molecule. And we made another brain like that and put in another person. Mm -hmm. Would that would that would that new cloned brain with all the same molecular positions, would it have the same all the same memories and all the same and I, I don't know, I'm asking your yeah. opinion. All the same memories no, right. and the same the same personality and the same uh essence, right. I suppose. Yeah. Like personal personality essence. Yeah. So I I have actually, uh, so this was one of those philosophical questions that was interesting to me back uh, when I was studying philosophy. So this is essentially the cloning problem, I guess. Uh, and do I think it would be the same, uh, it would have the same characteristics mm. uh, if you were to uh, kind of set it alive, somehow uh, put life into it as well? Uh, 
there, I don't see why not. So I, I think that yes, the answer the answer is yes mm. in that case. Mm. Would it be the same person? I think there, I'm not a hundred percent sure how it could be the same person. Literally in the individual set, like uh, would it be? For example, if 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 I were to clone you, for example, mm. in all your uh, all your detail, every every kind of neural connection, uh, mm. every detail. Uh, in in theory, we we might have a complete clone of you mm. uh, that might act the same way, talk the same way, and have the same thoughts and memories. But would it be you? That's a question I I don't I don't think I have the answer to. But I'm I'm kind of my guess is that it wouldn't be exactly you. Mm. Uh, it would be sort of different. Mm. But would it have the same kind of behaviors and memories there? There, I don't see why not. Yeah, I, I think I think so. So uh, are memories I, encoded um, at the like how, how when you look at a brain? Like, are you able to yes. understand where memories are stored? Um, there is there are some general ideas here uh, mm. that we have. Um, so so the main theme here is that memories are stored between the interconnections uh, of the of your neurons hmm. right so you can imagine that you have and different brain areas have different uh have neurons that are activated by different kinds of stimuli for example you have a you have the auditory cortex where you have neurons that are activated by different frequencies, sound frequencies. So if you have, uh, you know, a high frequency sound, uh, that'll activate one, one group of neurons in that area. If you have a lower frequency, higher frequency sound or lower frequency sound, that'll activate a different group of neurons close, close to that area, but not, not overlapping. Hmm. So a different set of neurons, right? Hmm. Uh, you might have the same thing. You, you, you have the same thing essentially for, for different visual input. You have a set of neurons that activate uh, when you see, you know, lines of a certain length and orientation, mm. uh, and then you have a slightly different group of neurons, uh, different, uh, you know, completely different group of neurons that are activated by a line of a different orientation or different uh, width, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so we can think of the neurons as representing essentially the, 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 the general perceptions or the general sensations that are arriving into your mind, into your brain. Uh, now, what what is it? What 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 does the memory system do? Well, suppose you hear a certain specific sound, for example, a high frequency, uh, say, uh, yeah, a high frequency tone, <laughs> and you also. Uh, whenever you hear that tone, you also see a certain line of a certain shape. Mm. Um, well, whenever those two patterns, whenever those two uh, features are simul uh, when they're simultaneously presented to you, mm. uh, the, the general theory is that they become associated. So there a connection between those representations becomes strengthened. Mm. So, so then later on, whenever you hear the, that tone, that also activates the line. Of course, experience is a lot more complex than just lines and tones. You can 
kind of generalize the same principle to various different fine grain kind of features, you know, different kinds of lines, for example, which lines that might make up the shape of a bird, for example, and then uh, the tones that might make up the, the sound of the chirping of that bird. Um, when those are, the general theory is that when those are simultaneously presented to you, when you experience those at the same time, those, the neurons that are activated to, to represent those, uh, those sensations become, uh, become connected to each other. So that the, a network starts to form between those, uh, those individual neurons. And you get uh, you, here you get this theory of cell assemblies. Uh, uh, actually, a Canadian uh, a Canadian uh, neuroscientist by the name of Donald Hebb. Mm. Uh, he he's he's one of the main names for this in the fifties, uh, a little earlier forties actually. Uh, 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 he he wrote a lot about this, and this has kind of held on. In in it's a general principle, uh, you know what what fires together wires together. Uh, so, so you have these memories forming to 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 then uh, to to then start to capture general categories of information. Mm. So that's one kind of memory, uh, and then you also have memories that are based directly on your own life, right? Mm. And so, if you take this a, a step further, so now let's let's uh, make our our lens a little more general. Instead of just talking about features, mm. now we can talk about objects and places. Mm. Um, suppose you you go to the park near your house and you see a bird chirping. Mm. Um, well, uh, the place that you're at and the time those become associated. There's a connection. So, so we have in the brain, the hippocampus, namely, uh, that's deep into you, in your brain, uh, deep in the middle of your brain. It's not the cortex, it's slightly subcortical. Uh, if you are to, uh, in the, in the near your ears, if you, if you kind of go deep in, in the middle of your brain, slightly above your ears, you have, that's where the hippocampus is stored. That's, that's where uh, the seat of memories is thought to be. Hmm. And so in, in cases like Alzheimer's disease, that's one of the first areas to start getting uh, uh, disintegrated. Hmm. Uh, basic one main idea that I tend to uh, accept is it's what's called the hippocampal indexing theory hmm. of memory. Okay. And so the idea is that uh, a specific memory trace, say to encode a specific experience that you have uh, is essentially based on an end. It's like an index in a kind of programming sense, almost mm. uh, you have an index, you have a certain point, uh, certain uh, one neuron in, in your hippocampus, for mm. example, mm. it might be a group of neurons that is associated with uh, say the sound, uh, the sound of the bird, uh, the image, the object, the bir that bird mm. in the park, that specific representation. So all the neurons that are representing it, mm. and also that specific that particular time, mm. and that, that essentially your sense of being in that place, and all of those associations are then bound. They're kind of packaged in into a into a what's called you know they're bound together. That's the that's the general term. Mm. Uh, they're bound. Uh, they're bound into a single entity, and that's that is 
you know, uh, my my conception of a memory mm. is it's essentially a, a binding between a set of uh, neural assemblies that are encoding different bits of your experience at that time. Mm. And so that's bound together. And so later on, you might go to the park. So you might be in the same place. Mm. And and you, you don't see that bird, right? And mm. you don't hear it. Um, but just because you're in that place that activates mm. that activates that neuron in mm. your hippocampus, which is also connected with these other assemblies, these other mm. uh, uh, bundles of, of activation that you encode at the first time. And that then you remember the bird and you, re- you remember the sound of the bird. You, it's kind of like you open a package, you open the whole box if you just have a single key into the box um i hope i didn't uh you know put that too too abstractly no i i think i followed you um but it's interesting that memories are sometimes like they're not set in stone they can change and they're flawed and some like people often remember something one way but it didn't quite happen that way and they find that out. that's right Mm. No, no, that's 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 exactly it. Uh, memories are not uh, veridical. They're not exactly uh, they they're not completely respectful of the, uh, the of what they're encoding. Mm. And so so that's that's kind of why I said that I believe that you can never step into the same river twice mm. because uh, later on uh, because there's overlap between mm. these neurons, right? And there's overlap between these connections. Mm. And so um, uh, we know there's a lot of work that shows that your your further memories, memories that you build on top of older memories can influence your, your, uh, the quality of the previous memories. They can shape them differently. Mm. Uh, And here, uh, you know, uh, there's a theoretical stream in the, in, in memory research uh, uh, called interference theory. Hmm. Basically, there's interference between memories. And, and that's, that's one way you can, uh, do you, you think know, you it, can capture? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just thought it came to me. Do you mm-hmm. think when if someone has a, a poor memory versus someone who has a good memory? Um, how, what do you attribute that to? Is that like the brain health? Is it like, is it a genetic thing? Or is it just a skill of remembering that they can improve upon? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think I'm, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that is a positive thing or a negative thing, uh, how well people can remember. Hmm. how veridical their, their memories are right because hmm. it because in some sense the memory the memory retrieval hmm. isn't always about exactly remembering things it's also about flexibly remembering things in the past right hmm. so if you were to have extremely veridical memories that are exactly like you know frames in an uh in a uh, in a video um then you might have difficulty generalizing. Uh, so there's a kind of trade-off between generalizability or flexibility to adapt to new experiences and uh, 
the, the, the kind of resolution of your memories. There's actually, you know, there, there are cases with uh, people with uh, different savant, people with different savant skills, mm. uh, you know, on the autism spectrum mm. often mm. Uh, who have the, highly veridical memories they're very precise they can remember for example they can name every uh you can ask them any question about their life and they can tell you exactly what day they did you know some some uh they did something for example or they can they can tell you every line from a given show mm. but uh oftentimes these uh these people don't necessarily have a uh, it doesn't help them throughout their day-to-day life mm. so so in that sense to to give to give you a quick an- to give you an answer I, I don't necessarily think it's a good thing to remember very well mm. uh you know uh, well remember with a hundred percent accuracy all the details it's not necessarily adaptive mm. to your day-to-day life mm. But there's obviously the other side of the coin as well. You also don't want to be, if, if the memory is too poor, for example, if you're constantly forgetting, you know, where you, um, you know, if you're forgetting where, where you put your keys, example, yeah, where you, well, that's, that's actually a different example, a different problem where you put your keys, right? Mm. Because there that's that's actually uh that's a phenomenon where people often forget where they put their keys people often forget whether they they got that they took their keys with them or not mm. uh that or or where they parked their car for example mm-hmm. uh those actually that's a slightly different problem having to do with interference yeah uh, because those are behaviors that you do so often mm. that you have so many different memory traces you know, you have, you've parked your car many, many, many times. You've also taken your keys and you've placed your keys uh, somewhere many, many times. So there you have a lot of memories that interfere. Mm. Uh, and so that there, a lot of forgetting um, people, th- th- this is sl- still debated, but there is a kind of line of thinking that, that suggests that people actually you never actually lose a memory trace you 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 were you you there's a whenever you forget something it's mm. not because you lost the memory hmm. it's it's really because you're getting interference from these other similar memories and that losing Whoa. your keys is a very good example yeah so many different contexts you for, you like people do keys. forget things and then they'll remember them later or sometimes like i'll exactly. forget something and then maybe i'll remember it in a dream or there'll be something, some trigger, <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, yes. sometimes, uh, if I, if I take mushrooms or something, like I'll remember it then yes. it's wild how yes. that you think the memory is lost, but it's, it's like locked away. And, and you're saying that's because of interference. Right. That's, uh, that's a general idea. I think there mm. are some, there are some memory theorists that would say that, uh, you never lose a memory. You only, uh, you you just need the right retrieval cue to, to bring it to mind, and so the the case with mushrooms is an interesting one hmm. because uh, one thing one, one general um, one general kind of overall uh, property of the mushroom state, uh, even maybe even in the microdose kind of level, is that uh, it sort of loosens up the constraints in the activations uh, of your neurons. Mm -hmm. Um, So it could be that, for example, when you're trying to remember something in a completely sober state, 
you're you have a very constrained sort of path of activation you mm-hmm. have a set of neurons you, you kind of try to uh you have a small set of neurons uh that are getting inhibited by a lot of other neurons to kind of keep a very precise signal uh but 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 then when you're in a maybe a psilocybin induced sort of state mm-hmm. uh one one general property that's been that's been documented is that you get slightly less constraint uh in the activation so you kind of loosen up the hmm. the the connectivity slightly and then it could be that then the the, the memory kind of has a has more retrieval pathways yeah i uh, i haven't i haven't noticed this as starkly with psilocybin and i haven't done lsd in in a while but i do remember having when i when i did lsd um, more often, which was like ten years ago or something. But as like, have you heard of acid flashbacks? And you sure, of course. Like I remember, yes. I'd be just like driving my car, just and and I don't know what the trigger would be, but it would just like take me back to that moment when I was on LSC. I'd be like, holy fuck, and I would just like remember exactly right. what I was thinking in a similar situation yes. whilst under that state. Right, right, and then this. Here, I, I would again explain this maybe based on this sort of bundling of a certain experience with a set of uh, set of neural assemblies, different different bundles of neurons that are activated. Those those could encode different, you know, features of your experience. So different images you're seeing, different audio auditory signals that you're hearing. Mm. And then those get all get bundled up. And you're in the car and that being in the car might, you know, open up the whole package, so to speak. Mm. And when you're in the LSD uh, state, Mm. uh, I feel like you get a richer set of activations. Mm. Um, You generally have uh, the the one main uh, one main, although this is there's we need a lot more research here. Mm. Uh, you know, psychedelic research is pretty, uh, it's, it's an emerging, emerging kind of, uh, area. Yeah. Uh, it's been, it's been hampered for a long time by, uh, you know, legal problems, mm. uh, you know, the war on drugs, the unfortunate war on drugs, that has been hurting much more than helping. Mm. Uh, but, but before getting kind of political there, mm. uh, one general idea is that psychedelics is that, well, the, the, the typical state, uh, the sober state, uh, uh, involves a lot of inhibitory connectivity, uh, specifically from your prefrontal cortex into your sensory areas, into your, well, the gates that basically, bri- uh, that open, uh, you, there's, a, there's an area of the brain called the thalamus. Okay, I've heard Which of that. Which is a kind of real. It's it's like heard a of the relay hyperthalamus. System. Is there, are those two the, different things? They're they're different things, but they're hmm. the hypothalamus is essentially just just below the thalamus. So that okay. the hypothalamus, a lot of the hormone, um, a lot of hormone regulation is is mo- is modulated is regulated through right. through neural systems in the hypothalamus. Okay, but then the thalamus, basically your se- your sensory si- the, uh, the, the nerves from your sensory organs, like your eyes, your ears, uh, the vestibular nerves, uh, all of those 
arrive into your brain, into the cortex through the thalamus. Hmm. So the thalamus, it's kind of like a, like, you know, on a computer, like on your motherboard, you have the bus, the system bus, Hmm. which is, you know, that's where like the keyboard connects and then the, the, everything is basically connected or all this, all the input and outputs Hmm. are basically coming into or going leaving the system Mm. uh the thalamus is kind of like the system bus of your brain Mm. uh and so you have you constantly have a ton of information flooding the thalamus Mm. right and obviously we can't the brain can't deal with all that information at once Mm. so so the prefrontal there are prefrontal inhibitory connections that are constantly shutting out the gates so you can think of the, there being a lot of gates at the thalamus where information is flooding in. Mm. But in order to stay focused on a specific task, mm. the prefrontal areas have to inhibit all the irrelevant information so that you can maintain your attention on just what you need to focus on now mm. for, for a specific goal. Uh, one general... Uh, theory of how psychedelics work is that they essentially loosen up these networks of inhibition going into the thalamus so that you get a you get less constraint uh on what is uh, on the signals that are coming in through your different senses and so to go back to the flashback example one it could be that you've bundled up these generally richer uh uh, packages of experience during your LSD experience. And so they have a lot more, you know, uh, they, they become a lot more salient or, uh, or overwhelming when they're activated. Hmm. What do you think about the emerging psychedelic uh, research within, within psychology? Does that, does that interest you very much? Yeah, it's it's uh it's I've been following it here and there when I have time. Uh, I I find it quite fascinating. Um, I think there's still uh, some ways to go, mm. and what I want to see in this area is I haven't seen enough uh, formal work here. I've seen a lot of there's a lot of work in the at the neurophysiological level. Mm. So talking about you know the difference uh, and the neuroscientific level, mm. uh, but I haven't seen a lot of interesting work. Although I might not have looked far enough, I haven't seen a lot of interesting work that kind of uh, uh, discusses the findings at the level of a cognitive model, mm. at the level of information. You know uh, that doesn't. I haven't seen uh, enough work characterizing the information processing mm. uh, mechanisms involved mm. here. Mm. Um, so I, I, that's that's something I think we still need. As I said, like the research here is is pretty nascent. It's still early, mm. um, and so I think what we need we need are a lot more work before we can actually start building theoretical models. Mm. uh mathematical models of of psychedelic um uh, psychedelic states um but 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 i do think i have glanced at the literature a bit mm. uh, and I, I think there are some mm. some uh some more formal models here but i haven't 
seen anything that's really caught my eye. I might just not have looked far enough, you know, um, working in in academia these days, it's just so, uh, you need to take such a specific lens. You need to be so, uh, you, you really, you sort of need to have your blinders on just focus on a very specific niche topic. Exactly. Which is unfortunate, which Mm. I, you know, which is one, one other reason that I have become a, a slightly less interested in pursuing an academic career. Okay. Let, that's a good point to just take a quick pause. I uh, let for the, for our listeners, uh, we've both been having. Yep. We're not drinking very much, but I've had uh, a beer yep. and a half now, and I need to go to the washroom. Yes. <laughs> so, right. I don't know if if you don't, that's great. Could you just pontificate into um into our listeners' ears, and I'll be back in like five or two minutes, really. Well, um, uh, maybe we could just uh, take a pause because I might, I might actually, uh, yeah, benefit from going myself. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll take a <laughs> pause then. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Okay. Cool. Okay, and we're back. All right. Nice. Okay. So, um, yeah, we were just you were just saying how you were not feeling the academic, um world anymore and uh yeah let's talk about that so what what got you so sick of it yeah well um there are a couple of factors here um and you know uh, i guess the question is where do i start (laughs) Uh, well i I could start well first of all academia has been been becoming more and more bureaucratic Mm. Uh, it seems like the administrative load on faculty has been increasing. Mm. Uh, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy in academia. There's a lot of paperwork that is not directly related to the research. Uh, the administrative class within academia has been becoming more more and more bloated. Um, the, the grant writing process has become, uh, become a complete, uh, bore, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're basically current faculty are constantly fighting over grants and they're trying to constantly convince, uh, convince, uh, different committees that their, their research is worth funding. And Mm. that whole process just does not look, uh, look fun at all. Mm. Of course, there's also the, the, the accelerating infiltration of politics, mm. uh, specifically uh, identity politics, mm. into academia. Uh, the most recent, for example, being the the need to to state your pronouns. Mm. Uh, there's been a, a ma- major wave into this. Uh, into, into you know uh, the, the these kinds of uh, these kinds of cultures seem to be. be the uh, academia has become basically a cesspool of this sort of <laughs> woke culture, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when and I don't have anything against a lot of these identity groups, I just don't think it's. Uh, I, I don't think they they are going to accomplish what they want to accomplish, uh, as, assuming that their hearts are in the right place. I, I feel like they're mm-hmm. they're either. Uh, I feel like they're either they're they're either ignorant to 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 the to the uh, to the realities of these uh, of 
of what they're bringing about in society, or mm. I think they're they're simply evil and they <laughs> are doing this to uh, promote their own power and status yeah. in a sort of ingenuine uh, way. Uh, so there's that. Uh, there's also been the COVID situation. Uh, based uh, after after covid after the covid lockdowns mm. uh universities actually lost a lot of money mm. um but a lot of their their income was coming uh through international students uh mm. who were coming to study from abroad mm. and uh they lost a lot of income and mm. they lost a lot of funding that way and and as a result they started to cut a lot of um uh, a lot of uh, jobs. They they started to basically uh, uh, cut a lot of new new positions for uh, uh, early early researchers, which which has made the the field a, a lot more competitive mm. uh, in a kind of scary way. Which I I haven't really even attempted to uh, start applying or anything. Partly because I've decided I don't even think I'm that interested because of all these other reasons. Right. Another reason is that as you uh, go higher and higher in academia, you actually do less, less research yourself. Mm. You become more, uh, more of a manage. You you take up more of a managerial role mm. where you are um, essentially uh, mentoring different students. Uh, you're constantly going to meetings. Mm. Uh, you're constantly jumping through different uh different uh, bits of red tape essentially mm. and so uh i i felt like maybe industry might might be a more liberal liberating uh arena to mm. to to jump into mm. as an alternative although i i haven't tested the waters there enough yet either to uh, to really uh, to really know if i was correct or not but I mean, uh, yeah. certainly with this woke culture, I do feel like more and more places are are battlegrounds for this. Um, it's a and you know the culture is the cultures are becoming more divided. I, I, I'm sh I'm shielded from a lot of that because I've I've been sort of a digital yes. nomad for for a few years now, and uh, yes. like I'm sort of. Yeah, I don't I feel like I can avoid um I've been lucky enough to have have been able to avoid having to work in conditions that I that I would feel unpleasant. Like the yes. most jobs I I just do remotely and and um like I don't have to go to any kind of meetings or company about company culture and there's nothing really pushed and and such um but I hear what you're saying, and and from what I do understand about academia, it does seem like um, for people who don't believe in that ideology, like I feel like they're being ideologically bullied into submission or acquiescence into um, what <laughs> so like what what was once a, a very niche view of the world, but because yeah. that niche view of the world had access to the levels of power for one reason or another yes. has become far more predominant than it was just even yeah. five or 10 years ago, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, as someone who I, I like to see myself as a kind of, uh, I, I really cherish 
free uh, free freedom in, in different ways, freedom of the individual. Mm. Uh, I've, I I highly I ha- I highly value. Uh, free discourse, mm. uh, differing opposing views, and embracing mm. opposing views. Mm. But what I'm seeing more, more and more within academia mm. is a uh, is a sort of tribalism, mm. which completely shuns uh, free discourse. And uh, where, whereas, whereas for a long time, you know, academia would be the the, the battleground of ideas, mm. uh, where where people with opposing views would embrace one another and mm. Mm. Uh, engage in rational discourse. Mm. Uh, now what I'm seeing is a trend towards silencing the cancel culture mm. uh, mentality kind of popping its uh, its ugly head into the into the area mm. um, and and that's that's just upsetting to me and it, it makes me you know uh, it makes me feel like I was being naive to think that academia was truly the, the battleground of free uh free the free market of ideas essentially mm. I, i'm seeing that less and less mm. um you know one example for uh is is uh the, the covid uh situation for mm. example mm. is one where uh i did not see a single academic within my mm. uh department voice any kind of Dissenting disagreement opinion. yeah no dissent yeah. uh, regarding any of the policies mm. uh, no matter how draconian they were at the time mm. and i thought you know uh we're supposed to be disagreeing with each other we're supposed to be engaging in in, in debates here yeah uh where is all of that and i'm not seeing that anymore maybe it was my department uh, but I feel like this is becoming a more pervasive issue all around. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that that's been a major, major driver in me feeling not at home anymore in academia. Yeah. Do you do you so were you to leave academia? Would you still be interested in doing more research? Um, do you do you have I, I don't want you to name this any specific companies or anything, but like. Where do you see yourself going um, in a way that would make you like satisfied mm-hmm. that the, with the work you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, it's a shame. So I... Sorry, sorry, but it's, it's just it is. I just want to recognize that it is such a shame that um, the system, the university system, is driving away people like you who are obviously very intelligent and very passionate about their work. And they just feel like they can't work in that situation anymore. It's a huge loss for um, the Western world's academic system when the only people who are able to function in that system are people beholden to a particular perspective or point of view who may not be the best or the smartest or the brightest by any means, but simply the most ideological. Well, I appreciate uh, your your kind words there. I hope you I uh, hope you are right to some extent, but uh, I think it is it's essential. It's not necessarily everyone who is beholden to these ideas either. Mm. It's ultimately those who are beholden to these ideas and those who are who have the will to fake being beholden to these ideas? Who are okay with you know 
faking mm. their opinion. Mm. They they don't need to say what they really feel. They're mm. okay with um you know playing the pronoun game mm. they're they're okay with playing these games just to get through mm. uh but as someone who just likes to be up front mm. and and just does not like being ingenuine mm. uh it's tough it's tough uh mm. unless you agree unless you are beholden but i don't think i don't think a lot i don't think everyone is beholden i think a lot of people in academia are are submitted mm. into into certain uh, ideas. And honestly, I'm and... not even sure if that's not worse or not. <laughs> because if exactly. the academic well, exactly. system is full of people without a backbone, um, yes. who don't have that moral courage to stand up uh, and say what they truly believe, that's almost, that's, right. that's almost just as bad. I mean, that's a different problem, but it's a huge problem too. I think it's a massive problem, and I think it's uh, we've seen it with the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, you you no longer know where politics starts and where science ends, mm-hmm. or or vice versa. You mm-hmm. there's just a complete intertwining of science and politics now, mm-hmm. to, such that we can't tell what's true and what's false. Mm-hmm. We can't tell what's an agenda and what is uh, mm-hmm. empirical fact. Mm-hmm. There's just and then, and you know, uh, academia is full of, especially in my in, in the cognitive uh, psychological realm. There's a, it's full of new researchers now looking at misinformation, looking at you know conspiracy theories, and you know at the end of the day, you can't tell what's a conspiracy theory and what's a um, what's someone's agenda. You can't tell, you know, we have fact checking uh, mm. organizations now, for example. Uh, it's just really hard to trust people now. Mm. It's hard to tell what's true. And neither side is really helping. You know, mm. we we have people pushing really outrageous conspiracy theories out there. But at the same time, we have uh, people who claim to be proponents of facts, mm. people who claim to be proponents of truth. Uh, but they all seem to have some kind of agenda. It's just it's it's a it's a tough situation we're in, and I think maybe it's it's partly related to this intertwining of politics and science, and, and uh, this sort of post truth era that we live in now. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, I <laughs> yeah. There's so many things to talk about uh, on that. I, I have like many many things I could rant about, but. I'm trying to refrain from that and make this more yes. about uh, interviewing you. So I, I wanted to come back to then if you were to leave. So you're, you're yeah, almost, right, right, you're almost, right, you're almost, you're almost getting your, you almost have a PhD, right? So once yes, you right. you intend to complete your PhD and then, yes. And then do you have any inkling, like what, what would bring you satisfaction if you were to leave academia? Mm-hmm. What kind of, where would you, yeah, so I thought about this. So, mm. uh, I've I've given this some thought. Um, of course, I would enjoy continuing some kind of research, mm. uh, but at the same time, I've also picked up I picked up uh, quite a bit of you know technological skills throughout my my work. Uh, being in modeling, we work a lot with different programming languages. A lot of the experiments that we run, I mentioned to you that we often match uh, uh, 
match these models that we uh, we are testing with human experience, with human performance, and well, the way we we carry out carry out those experiments is using uh, what what I've done during my PhD has been using uh, online experiments. So so there throughout. Uh, I've picked up quite a bit of technological skills. So, and I've always been a very uh, technologically oriented. You know, I, I love programming. Uh, mm. I like to, uh, I, I like the uh, decentralization mm. trend that we're seeing. Mm. Um, so, so one, in, one in area like, that might. No, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, nothing. Go ahead. Yeah. One area. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And one one area that that might give that would give me satisfaction that I'm looking into is the sort of all tech uh, sort of arena mm. uh, where you know we're trying to kind of battle people who are trying to uh, push back on this big tech sort of takeover mm. of our lives mm. of our information of our data mm. uh that's one area that i would find satisfaction mm. working within say uh you know these alternative so social medias alternative uh technolo technologies for uh uh for putting putting your voice out there mm. uh alternative uh um communication uh protocols for example mm. uh i would i would in, I, I would enjoy working within within those areas of course i i highly value although i might be a uh, naive here uh, i highly value the work elon musk someone like elon musk is doing so mm. so so one of like uh like a kind of dream for me would be to uh to you know, uh, maybe give give working in uh, Neuralink a shot, hmm. uh, where where I can integrate a lot of my uh, my my more uh, neurophysiological understandings with my technological understandings. But again, I'm still a bit on uh, on the fence about uh, about the the kind of trajectory that sets sets us in terms of. Of the, whether that's going to be good for humanity in the long run or not in some sense the yeah. like the are you talking about is is it the stated goal of Neuralink that we're all going to have uh, is this i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong on this but is is there a right. agenda sort of like that you get a a microchip implanted in your brain so that you can more easily interfa interface with with uh technology right mm. right so it's it's not exactly a microchip, but I think I think Elon Musk's general, um, I think his um, his understanding is that artificial intelligence is not going anywhere, mm. and we are we are ultimately approaching this sort of crossover between human intelligence and artificial intelligence, mm. such that artificial intelligence is going to greatly exceed mm. uh anything that we any kind of intelligence that we are capable of mm. and so his solution mm. for this has been to integrate with uh integrate the human human intelligence with artificial intelligence mm. into a sort of transhumanist uh uh creature mm. <laughs> if mm. i if i may if i can use that term mm. some kind of transhumanist uh mutation of of the human 
human con- condition mm. uh, it seems to be what what Elon Musk is pushing for mm. which I you know I don't well first of all I think I think he, Elon Musk tends to uh, have views visions that are maybe uh, maybe a bit more optimistic uh, than 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 real realistic uh i think uh, i don't necessarily think he's going to achieve these goals anytime very anytime soon if, if potentially not, never not at all hmm. but that that sort of work would would ultimately best integrate my my knowledge base hmm. so that's one pathway hmm. but another pathway is essentially to go against all of that and hmm. to use my knowledge and skills to kind of uh to push back, mm. to kind of try to bring humanity back to a sort of uh, more primal state, potentially something more, you know, uh, more, more organic, mm. less, uh, less, yeah, transhumanist, I'm not, I'm not less convinced. Integra- yeah. Exactly. I'm not convinced That's either, right. but I'm also like, yeah. I'm not um, necessarily convinced to be opposed to it either. <laughs> I th- That's my, right. For me personally, I think the, the best thing uh, for humanity probably is that we don't make everyone go all in the same direction together. And if some people exactly. want to go in that transhumanist integration with AI, um, let them. And if some yes. people or cultures or societies or whatever uh, don't want to do that and want to return to a more organic state or go against that, then mm-hmm. that's good too. I think I think that kind of diversity mm-hmm. is the best uh, situation yes. for the evolution of humanity at this stage where we're not putting all our eggs in one basket necessarily. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, mm. And you know, this is a common kind of uh, investing strategy, right? You want to spread your risk. You, we mm. don't want to put all, we don't want to be like a one trick pony here. Mm. Um, and and so, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Mm. And that, that is, that is what motivates me to want to participate within this sort of decentralized uh, direct uh, decentralized uh, realm of te- technological advances, where we kind of we take back the power mm. from these centralized, uh, you know, centralized elites to, to, to use, a, you know, I don't I don't want to use that term, but I did mm. um take back some of the control and give it back to the individual because Mm. you're right. Exactly. Uh, As soon as some of this, one one of these technologies becomes, you know, predominant enough, it becomes uh, widespread enough. It seems like it turns out to be a a means for control Mm. a means to control the masses. Mm. Um, You know, we have, we have organizations right now that are probably working on this day in and day out. Yeah, and uh, it would be great to have a way to balance out things out there, uh, because at the end of the day, I, I highly value the individual. I highly value people's own decision making and their own uh, their own uh, egos in their own wills. Hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, it's such a complicated question, like. Uh, you know, the, if if we lived in a society where we could trust the institutions, um, I would probably feel more 
more interested in interface in having that um kind of like cybernetic enhancement but yes like the you know like the default it's just it's just like i i just think big tech is has a, mm-hmm. has uh abandoned its more its sort of moral authority or like it's it's it it's it needs to be an impartial thing that doesn't try to motivate people one way or another so that people can just when that when they have that enhancement they're they're interfacing with something objective but if if big tech is saying you can think this or you can't think this or you can see this or you can't see this then you're essentially beholden to the what some of the most powerful elites in our culture want you to think as someone with very little power. And yes. And, and that's the basis for me not being really interested in it. But if it was in a more pure world where, where I could trust their objectivity, (laughs) if such a world were to ever exist, then I'd be much more Mm -hmm. open to, Mm -hmm. to becoming kind of an enhanced person in that way. Yes. Mm. And and this kind of brings me back to this idea of uh, trustless technologies, right? Mm. Because I, I I ultimately don't think we can ever trust. First of all, we can't, as soon as there's this, any kind of power asymmetry between, you know, the individual and an organization, mm. uh, it give it, whether it's a cor- corporation or if it's a government, mm. I think as soon as there's an asymmetry, asymmetry of power, mm. there's going to need to be, there's going to be a leap of faith when it comes to the trust problem, mm. right? And this is where I think it's worth uh, dedicating some resources and uh, some effort to to try to come up with trustless systems mm. and this is what interests me a lot in in you know the blockchain uh the, the crypto world mm. and you know decentralization mm. is is a ways we can come up with trustless infrastructure where you don't need to trust uh any any party you don't need mm. to trust any organization mm. it the the, the, the trust should not be necessary the the trustless uh infrastructure should should be kind of i mean this is sort of an uh sort of the grand vision i have but i feel like we need to move towards a trustless society infrastructure that is inherently trustless which takes the trust away like which which eliminates the need to have trust because you know for sure that the system is constructed in a way that there's no need to have trust. Mm. There's, there's, it's mm. trustless completely. Mm. Mm. For example, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the blockchain. Yeah. For example, it's a, it's a sort of trustless way of checking. For example, if you want to check um, the history of transactions on a ledger, mm. there's no need to trust the system. Mm. Uh, well, there's no need to trust your uh say the person you're transacting with because the whole blockchain itself is trustless and and i'm not sure if i'm making um i'm yes so so i think i think we need to go a step further there and we need to work towards a sort of trustless we need to work towards trustless infrastructure and this is what makes me so excited about 
this trend towards decentralization, decentralized tech. Mm. Uh, and if we can bring this to the world of politics, if we can bring this to the world of research, mm. um, start um, st- start working uh, working with a trustless mindset. You know, another example, for example, is uh, another uh, for say say in the software development realm we mm. have open source software mm. uh that's another kind of example of a sort of what i might what i call like a you know quasi trustless sort of system where you can check the code uh there's no you don't need to trust the the producer right you can you can check the code yourself yeah and for our uh, listeners who might not know what open source software means it basically means as you said uh the code is out there and being able to be viewed by anyone so there's no hidden programming um or encoded uh algorithms that that might be something if you knew they were there you'd be like oh what the heck is this so people who can read code can see the code and know um exactly what it's being what it's doing what the program is doing that's right yeah and i think as human beings we we can't it's it's just ultimately uh maybe there were there were certain ways we've organized in the past where mm. it was easier to trust one another mm. uh but then again even then i think even even if even if we were living in tribes even if we were living you know even if it was just it was familial tribes mm. for example where everyone is blood related mm. um i feel like there would still be the problem of trust right mm. you you would always get the one individual who would try to um accumulate a little more Mm. for themselves Mm. uh to the expense of everyone else maybe not just Uh, one individual maybe maybe it was a lot of individuals who were doing that and that's that should be the assumption i think that Mm. everyone is going to be doing that and that's Mm. what's so great i think uh about the capitalist sort of mentality is that we assume ego we assume the ego as the primary we assume self-interest and we come up with a system that exploits this self-interested motivation to benefit everybody Hmm. and i think we need to extrapolate from this and make turn this into a more ubiquitous sort of all-encompassing uh framework for our infrastructure all around uh we can't trust each other at the ultimately we can't trust anyone Mm. um so how do we build trustless systems Mm. that's that's a new question that's been uh really interesting me um so that if if i can contribute there i would be i would be satisfied that sounds awesome (laughs) i would be so happy to if someone like you were working on solving that problem, then being stuck away and, um, well, I mean, sure, I'm sure academia has its good points too. But if it's as dire as you say, I think I think it's good probably that people are pursuing other other avenues of achievement rather than being locked away in there. Um, but in terms of this trustless, uh, this trust like i understand the blockchain like uh cryptocurrency mm-hmm. that everyone can see the history of all the transactions yes. and stuff but 
Um, if you were to introduce, say, like a trust, have you, have, I mean, I don't know if you have the answer now, but do you have like an idea of what a trustless, say, politics would be? Or, or like a trustless, yeah. or any, any other trustless um, paradigms right. Right. In, in, in other contexts? So, um, actually, this, this, this conversation that we've been having has motivated me to kind of come up actually go out there, look for some concrete examples of trustless infrastructure, trustless co programs mm. uh, to try to come up with this sort of taxonomy of trustless approaches. Mm. But I have thought about one, mm. one possible application. This has, has a lot to do with uh, the, the conundrum that we're in, we're in often now. Mm. Uh, and this, this comes up uh, when we want to evaluate truth. Mm. Right. What is true and what is false? Mm. What is fact and what is fake news or fiction? Mm. Um, so one example might be that if what if we have a sort of blockchain type system for evaluating truth? So uh, what is what do I mean by that? So uh, I make a certain claim. Right. I tell you that the vac so, so the vaccine causes, for example, uh, a certain illness. Mm. Uh, and this is true, you know, this percent of the time. Uh, what if we build a system where any claim that you make about any sort of any claim that will ultimately be very uh, influential in, in how we carry out carry uh, our day-to-day -day tasks mm. any claim that you make suppose you have a platform where every claim that you make has to be placed within a sort of blockchain mm. or it has to be submitted into a sort of blockchain like system mm. where you have miners uh, instead of simply keeping track of transactions the mining software uh evaluates the truth of that claim. Hmm. So, and the way it does it is through an open source, uh, through, through open source code that anyone can observe and uh, open source code that has been produced through uh, various iterations of, of uh, assessment. And, and there's, there's great consensus on this, uh, on but the how, way the, the, how, the truth how, evaluation works. how but what would i mean i don't you, maybe if you're just thinking of this now i don't know if you have the answer but how would yeah how would you evaluate truth uh, like objectively what would you refer to yeah yep so you could um the, this would be basically the part of the mining protocol. Yeah. So instead of uh, instead of so so the way you would make uh, make money say on this blockchain mm. is you would contribute your computer, for example, to uh, to run the code mm. that uh, goes out and essentially try grabs different part different bits of information mm. to try to build uh build uh, a list of pros and a list of cons uh, a list of you know evidence for evidence against this claim mm. uh so evidence for uh could could be you know you, you might have a lot of anecdotal bits of evidence uh these might be based on just forums this these might not be very highly weighted uh but then you could also have literature searches 
where you search through for published peer-reviewed studies in their claims. And you can tally, try to tally all of this up. And I guess, I guess ultimately you can't have a yes and no. You, you might be, you, maybe the best that we could do is have a gradation. So have like uh, the probability that this is true versus, uh, you know, the probability that this is a false claim. And if you could have all of this on an open ledger, which is driven by this engine, this tr- truth evaluation engine, which is essentially like a search engine, uh, which then uses... It's essentially a, a script of sorts, which different machines can can uh, allocate their resources to run the script, and then this is all published on an open uh, open platform. Anyone can check. Maybe that could get rid of some of the some of some of the trust issues that we have today yeah. when it comes to to telling what's true and what's false. You know, this could be a pretty naive idea. I'm not sure. I, I probably have to give it more thought, but mm. that's the sort of thing that I, that, that, that could be, you know, that that's the sort of idea I have when it comes to a trustless system. Mm. You know, you can currently like uh, most people log into Twitter, for example, one person says one thing, another person says another thing. Uh, you know, you, no one nowadays seems to try. Well, I mean, half the population seems to trust the news media. Hmm. Half the population seems to think that it's all driven by an agenda. Hmm. How could we? How could we bring truth back to the public? Hmm. And how could we do it with a trustless system, such that, um, such that you don't? The trust is not required. Hmm for the system to work, for the truth to be uh, transferred, uh, delivered to the, to the, to the user, to the, Mm. to the perceiver. Mm. And how could we make it so it's unhackable? Mm. It's on, there's no way you can uh, mess around with it. There's no way any kind of agenda can influence it. And this, this is where, you know, decentralized tech, um, uh, blockchain type of technology might be might be helpful. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Heck, if you find a way, <laughs> if you find something that's actually um, making a difference in that way, you let me know because maybe maybe I could lend a hand yes. too. Because I think that's a noble would, and and very important goal. I would be glad to work with you on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so usually when I do interviews, I, I, I often talk about people's I, – I usually go through like their childhood all the way sort of like to where they are now. And we, ha- we haven't done this yep. in the course of, that conver- of, of this conversation. I think that's, that's fine. Like I've been happy to just sort of roll with it. Um, yep. And um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, do you feel like – we're we're almost wrapping up here. It's like we've been we've been doing this for almost almost two hours, and I don't want it really to go oh, over wow. two hours. I know it it flies, doesn't it? <laughs> it really flew by. Yeah. yeah, we've had some good conversations. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel like talking about anything like um, your formative years, or is there anything else you sort of want to bring up before before uh, we wrap up? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, if you have any part, any specific questions you wanted me to talk about, I still have a some uh, a little beer left. I could I could uh, <laughs> could sit sit down and uh, you know I'd I'd be happy to have it with you and talk. Okay. Um, okay. Well, let's let's just so let's if, just do something yeah. totally different then um, for for a few minutes. So I know that you were you had been. Uh, so, so you're, were you, you, you were born in E, was it, were you born in Iran or were you born in Canada? Yeah. I, so I was born in Iran. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, to, well, what, what I call that the Islamic Republic of Iran now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, and I, I moved to Canada when I was 10 years old. Oh wow! Uh, my 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 dad was a he's a really hardworking man. He still is, and he was at the time. He, uh, uh, you know, a lot of my family at the time had already immigrated. Uh, a lot of my my family immigrated shortly after the Islamic Revolution. Yeah. Uh, but but my parents uh, had sort of stayed behind for a while. Um, they kind of missed the uh, the boat on the whole uh to get refugee status so mm. uh but my dad was like a pretty hard working uh man mm. um and he he uh we we immigrated to canada um through the point system basically mm. uh my my dad was uh he he works in architecture mm. and he um you know he he went through a lot of uh red tape mm. well a lot of administrative type of work and uh he was able to convince the canadian government that he has a you know uh useful skills to offer and so we we immigrated here when i was 10 years old have you ever been back to iran since then i have not no, oh okay. i have not what what do you remember about it uh yeah, so so my memory of Iran is kind of twofold, mm. I would say. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, there was the family life that we had. Mm. This was behind closed doors, inside, mm. right? Um, without the peering in of uh, the moral police of the Islamic Republic. Mm. Uh, so we had, you know, we had some, I have good memories of that. You know, we'd have family get togethers. Uh, there was no need to like for a woman to wear their hijabs and things like that. Mm. Uh, we also had a cottage in Iran, uh, which I, this was in the North of Iran, just, just, uh, just below the Caspian sea, Cool. Uh, we used to go there during the summers and we'd stay there. And this was a really, really, these were some of some really fun, uh, great memories I have of my childhood where, mm. you know, there was a, we essentially had this, uh, this plot of land where different, uh, each, uh, different, basically different parts of the family had each had a little villa, mm. Uh, in a specific part of the same like same plot of land mm. uh, and so we had our own little villa so that was my family and my grandparents mm. uh, then we had say my uh, my mother's cousins they mm. were uh, they had a villa nearby as well mm. and if there was all together, I'd say about five, six different families, mm. each had a different villa. Mm. And these were just, and then 
when there was an there was a sort of exit gate and you would it would exit out onto the beach mm. and the beach was essentially the caspian sea so mm. we would all uh we would go there during the summers uh i i, I was I was born in Tehran, Iran. So mm. that's the capital. So a mm. big, big city kind of yeah. place. And so we would go go to the north of Iran. This was just south of the Caspian Sea. Uh, that Those were some great times I had. But then I also have, so those were my good memories. Mm. This was, you know, private uh, with family. Mm. Uh, and, and but then I have the public man, public life was mm. different in mm. Iran. Maybe it is still mm. different mm. compared to private life. And there you you are under the scope of the Islamic regime, mm. which I, in hindsight, I would compare to a kind of communist regime. Mm. They they want to uh, make sure that you're not thinking the wrong things. They want to make sure that you're not looking the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to make sure that women are, you know, wearing their hijabs and everything, mm-hmm. uh, abiding by Islamic law, as they put it. Mm-hmm. And there, I have memories of, you know, being in class. For example, I I, I was in in several of the, my my first three grades of elementary school were in Iran, mm-hmm. and there I was a good, I was a great student there, so I, I excelled. Uh, except I, I have these memories of, you know, there were special events there, mm. uh, Islamic events, mm. uh, where they would, they would have things like, you know, every, all the kids, all the students, they would, they would announce this, for example, all the students with like Islamic names would be invited to like get special prizes and things like that. Whoa. And you know, I I don't have a I don't have an is my parents didn't give me an Islamic name. And at the time I was, you know, was thinking, oh, I'm missing out on this. Yeah. But in hindsight, I'm glad that, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Uh so there were there were these kinds of memories as well. There were memories, you know, uh my mother oftentimes cursing at the regime uh cursing at those who would go to these protest events uh well not protesting against the regime but protesting for the regime like protesting against the u.s for example yeah uh which are those are the images that uh i think people us the people in the west are familiar with you know uh, a lot of people in like black women and black clothing and uh Mm. men with all with thick beards kind Mm. of uh chanting like death to america for example (laughs) Yeah, we would. Uh, so I have memories of those being shown on TV and my mother kind of cursing at them, being like, <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I think I may maybe inherited some of that, <laughs> some of that resentment from her. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was twofold in that sense. Yeah. Wow. It, it, well, it wasn't until later was on in my he- life. No, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Going. I was going to say it was for a long time uh, living in the West. I was, uh, I'd say, I was a bit ashamed of it, of my, of, of being from there. Hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until sort of recently, until I started to kind of look more into the history before, hmm. say, hmm. the Islamic Re- Revolution, before even the, the Islamic uh, conquest hmm. of Iran. Hmm. Uh, looking at the great history, the great empires that were there before the Zarathustrian. Hmm. 
history of mm. Iran. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until I started to look into those parts of history. Is it Zarathustra or Zoroaster? Is that two so, different things? Yeah, I think I think it's pronounced both ways. I okay. think uh, Zoroastrian maybe is the right way. Is is the common way to say it? Okay. But, okay. Uh, Zarathustrian, I say this kind of. I'm thinking of Nietzsche's uh, dust book Zarathustra. Right. Here. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there are a lot now. I've having grown up a bit, I found a lot more to be proud of than to be ashamed of. But there is, has been a patch in our recent history that mm. is is certainly more shameful, mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, I regret that. And yeah, but yeah, that's kind of been. <laughs> was it? Was it? What, what was it like as a ten year old to come to another country? Um, was that like a very difficult transition? I remember, I like when I was, mm. I guess, eight. My parents, yes, like we moved from one part of town to another, and I had to like, yep. you know, I lost all my friends, and I had to make new friends, and it was like yeah. a, it was like a difficult transition for me as an eight year old. <laughs> but that's still mm. in the same city, right? Like, was it was it yeah. hard uh, as a ten year old to go to a completely different country, speaking a different language and all that? Yeah, so it's 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 a it's an interesting kind of thing because it wasn't hard. At, it didn't feel it wasn't the kind of difficult that you feel you feel it at during the time that you go through it mm. you kind of just go through the experience mm. at the time mm. but it was the kind of thing that you look back on and you think okay that was a tough time mm. but you don't realize that how tough it was until after mm. if that makes any sense yeah you kind of you realize how tough it was in hindsight yeah and so that's that's how i would i would explain it as i mean we kind of we literally had to start from zero we uh you know moved into a rented uh a, a rented apartment uh we kind of we started off with literally like no no furniture and that took like a couple of months to build up to yeah and then uh you know, it was, uh, and then there was a cultural, there was a slow cultural shift that, that started to take place, especially within me and my brother, mm. my younger brother, mm. um, which, you know, my, my, it took my, my, my mother was, was, uh, was much more, you know, uh, acquiescent to it, to it. But, uh, my, 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 my father was initially slow, sort of resistant to it. You know, for example, I started to like, do things like spike my hair and things like that. And he didn't mm. like that or, mm. uh, you know, you know, certain, certain subtle things that mm. like he, he was resisting initially, but mm. then, but then it became, you know, uh, not, not a, not an important matter at all. Yeah. And so your family growing up, like they weren't a very, you, your parents aren't particularly religious, I guess then. Eh? No, mm. no. They were very, I, I grew up, I was lucky enough to grow up in a very secular, mm. um, they're not religious, but they are, uh, well, my, my, my father, I would say he's maybe, he, he, he'll talk about, you know, God mm. in, 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 when he's, he's talking, mm. my mother is actually, you know, she's a, she's a firm believer in like a higher power, mm. uh, in God and whatnot, but not, not religious, like, right. uh, not yeah. uh, by the book, so to speak. Yeah, in yeah. fact, she's, you know, dabbled in different religions. Like she's 
she's interested in the Bible for some time. Yeah. You know, she's been interested in Buddhism and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of, there is a sort of cultural distinction in Iran as well between the more modernist Iranians who are like, you know, not so different from uh, people, you know, modern thinking people here. Mm. And then the more traditionalist uh, Iranians who are, you know, by the live by the Quran kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I was I was raised I, I was born into a secular family in that sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. How do you say Zoroastrian or Zarathustrian? How mm. do you, how do you say that in, in Farsi? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you say Zartoshti. Zartosht. Okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. It's a fascinating religion. I, I want to know more about it, but I don't, I don't know much, but it, it was probably maybe the mm-hmm. earliest was it the earliest monotheist? It wasn't totally monotheist. It was sort of duotheistic, yeah. but no, that that that's right. That's right. It, I I I'm pretty sure it was one of the earliest monotheistic, maybe the first mm. monotheistic religion, mm. uh, which uh, takes takes the god. Uh, uh, I guess you could call him a god, Ahura Mazda, mm. as you know, uh, which sort of which which which. Uh, I've been realizing actually uh, uh, is is quite resonant with my worldview now. Mm. Uh, Uhura Mazda is kind of the god of wisdom, mm. the god the god of knowledge, mm. and that's sort of that's the kind of end goal that Zoroastrianism sort of sets as the highest ideal is is to make is to achieve the greatest wisdom in life and that and Uhura Mazda is like the god of wisdom wow I'll have to learn more about it I hope so I I think I think we got to wrap up but um I really enjoy the conversation I hope you can be a guest again for a part two we can talk about more things and 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 more things we've learned maybe further down the line. Um, but yeah, I think that, yeah. I think it was really, really interesting, really interesting conversation and, and probably so much more Thank I could you. pick your brain, uh, with, but we'll have to save that for another day. <laughs> cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I had a great time. Okay. Well, take care. Have a nice day. Bye, All Mr. Right. Pink. <laughs> Thank you. Take bye. care. Okay. Bye. Thank you.